0: Section 17 of The Myths of the New World This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording by Ron Lockhart. The Myths of the New World by Daniel Brinton. Chapter 6, Part 2. Our authorities on Iroquois traditions, though numerous enough, are not so satisfactory. The best, perhaps, is Father Brebeuf, a Jesuit missionary who resided among the Hurons in 1626. Their culture myth, which he has recorded, is strikingly similar to that of the Algonkins. Two brothers appear in it, Ioskia and Tawaskara, names which find their meaning in the Oneida dialect as the White One and the Dark One. They are twins, born of a virgin mother, who died in giving them life. Their grandmother was the moon, called by the Hurons adensic, a word which signifies literally she bathes herself, and which, in the opinion of Father Bruyus, a most competent authority, is derived from the word for water. The brothers quarreled and finally came the blows, the former using the horns of a stag, the latter the wild rose he of the weaker weapon was very naturally discomfited and sorely wounded fleeing for life the blood gushed from him at every step and as it fell turned into flint stones the victor returned to his grandmother and established his lodge in the far east on the borders of the great ocean whence the sun comes in time he became the father of mankind and special guardian of the iroquois the earth was at first arid and sterile but he destroyed the gigantic frog which had swallowed all the waters and guided the torrents into smooth streams and lakes the woods he stocked with game and having learned from the great tortoise who supports the world how to make fire taught his children the indians this indispensable art he it was who watched and watered their crops and indeed without his aid says the old missionary quite out of patience with such puerilities they think they could not boil a pot Sometimes they spoke of him as the sun, but this only figuratively. From other writers of early date, we learn that the essential outlines of this myth were received by Tuscaroras and the Mohawks, and as the proper names of the two brothers are in the Oneida dialect, we cannot err in considering this the national legend of the Iroquois stock. There is strong likelihood that the Taran Hiawagon, he who comes from the sky of the Onondagas, who was their supreme god who spoke to them in dreams and in whose honour the chief festival of their calendar was celebrated about the winter solstice was in fact ioskia under another name as to the legend of the good and bad minds given by cusick to which i have referred in a previous chapter in the later and holy spurious myth of Hiawatha, first made public by Mr. Clark in his History of Onondaga, and which, in the graceful poem of Longfellow, is now familiar to the world, they are but pale and incorrect reflections of the early native traditions. So strong is the resemblance Ioskia bears to Macabo, that what has been said in explanation of the latter will be sufficient for both. Yet I do not imagine that the one was copied or borrowed from the other. We cannot be too cautious in adopting such a conclusion. The two nations were remote in everything but geographical position. I call to mind another similar myth. In it, a mother is also said to have brought forth twins, or a pair of twins, and to have paid for them with her life. Again, the one is described as the bright, and the other as the dark twin. Again, it is said that they struggled with one with the other for the mastery. Scholars, likewise, have interpreted the mother to mean the dawn, the twins either light and darkness or the four winds. Yet, this is not Algonquin theology, nor is it at all related to that of the Iroquois. It is the story of Sarama in the Rig Veda, and was written in Sanskrit under the shadow of the Himalayas centuries before Homer. Such uniformity points not to a common source in history, but in psychology. Man, chiefly cognizant of his soul through his senses, thought with an awful horror of the night which deprived him of the use of one and foreshadowed the loss of all. Therefore, light and life were to him synonymous. Therefore, all religions promised to lead from night to light, from night to to heavenly light. Therefore he who rescues is ever the light of the world. Therefore it is said, To the upright ariseth light in darkness. Therefore everywhere the kindling east, the pale dawn, is the embodiment of his hopes and the center of his reminiscences. Who shall say that his instinct led him here astray? For is not, in fact, all life dependent on light? do not all those marvelous and subtle forces known to the older chemists as the imponderable elements without which not even the inorganic crystal is possible proceed from the rays of light let us beware of that shallow science so ready to shout eureka and reverently acknowledge a mysterious intuition here displayed which joins with the latest conquests of the human mind to repeat and emphasized that message, which the evangelist heard of the Spirit, and declared unto men that God is light. Both these heroes, let it be observed, live in the uttermost East. Both are mythical fathers of the race. To the East, therefore, should these nations have pointed as their original dwelling place. This they did in spite of history. Cusick, who takes up the story of the Iroquois a thousand years before the Christian era, locates them first in the most eastern region they ever possessed, while the Algonkins, with one voice, called those of their tribes, living nearest the rising sun of our ancestors at the east or at the dawn, literally our white ancestors. I designedly emphasize this literal rendering, It reminds one of the white twin of Iroquois legend, and illustrates how the color white came to be intimately associated with the morning light and its beneficent effects. Moreover, color has a specific effect on the mind. There is a music to the eye as well as to the ear, and white, which holds all hues in itself, disposes the soul to all pleasant and elevating emotions. Not fashion alone bids the bride wreath her brow with orange flowers, nor was it a mere figure of speech that led the inspired poet to call his love fairest among women, and to prophesy a messiah fairer than the children of men, fulfilled in that day when he appeared in garments so white as no fuller on earth could white them. No nation is free from the power of this law, White, observes Adair, of the southern Indians, is their fixed emblem of peace, friendship, happiness, prosperity, purity, and holiness. Their priests, dressed in white robes, as did those of Peru and Mexico, the kings of the various species of animals, were all supposed to be white. The cities of refuge, established as asylums for alleged criminals by the Cherokees, in the manner of the Israelites, were called white towns. And for sacrifices, animals of this color were ever most highly esteemed. All these sentiments were linked to the dawn. Language itself is proof of it. Many Algonquin words for east, morning, dawn, day, light, as we've already seen, are derived from a radical signifying white. Or, we can take a tongue nowise related, the quiche, and find its words for east, dawn, morning, light, bright, glorious, happy, noble, all derived from Zach, white. We read in their legends of the earliest men that they were white children, white sons, leading a white life beyond the dawn. And the creation itself is attributed to the dawn, the white one, the white sacrificer of blood but why insist upon the point when in european tongues we find the daybreak called l'aube alva from "albus," white enough for the purpose if the error of those is manifest who in such expressions would seek support for any theory of ancient european immigration enough if it displays the true meaning of those traditions of the advent of benevolent visitors of fair complexion in anti-columbian times, which both Algonkins and Iroquois had in common with many other tribes of the western continent. Their explanation will not be found in the annals of Japan, the triads of the Simric bards, nor the sagas of Icelandic skulls, but in the propensity of the human mind to attribute its own origin and culture to that white shining orient where sun, moon, and stars are daily born in renovated glory, to that fair mother who at the cost of her own life gives light and joy to the world, to the brilliant womb of Aurora, the glowing bosom of the dawn. Even the complicated mythology of Peru yields to the judicious application of these principles of interpretation. Its peculiar obscurity arises from the policy of the Incas to blend the religions of conquered provinces with their own. Thus, about 1350, the Inca, Pachacutec, subdued the country about Lima, where the worship of Khan and pachacama prevailed. The local myth represented these as father and son, or brothers, children of the sun. They were without flesh or blood, impalpable, invisible, and incredibly swift of foot. Khan first possessed the land, but Cacachamá attacked and drove him to the north. Irritated at his defeat, he took with him the rain, and consequently to this day the sea coast of Peru is largely an arid desert. Now, when we are informed that the south wind, that in other words which blows to the north, is the actual cause of the aridity of the lowlands and consider the light and airy character of these antagonists, we cannot hesitate to accept this as a myth of the winds. The name of Contiki, the thunder vase, was indeed applied to Viracocha in later times, but they were never identical. Viracocha was the cultural hero of the ancient Aymara quichua stock. He was more than that, for in their creed he was creator and possessor of all things. Lands and herds were assigned to other gods to support their temples, and offerings were heaped on their altars, but to him none. For, asked the Incas, Shall the Lord and Master of the whole world need things from us? To him, says Acosta, They did attribute the chief power and commandment over all things and elsewhere in all this realm the chief idol they did worship was Veracocha and after him the Sunay ere sun or moon was made he rose from the bosom of lake Titicaca, and presided over the erection of those wondrous cities whose ruins still dot its islands and western shores and whose history is totally lost in the night of time he himself constructed these luminaries and placed them in the sky, and then peopled the earth with its present inhabitants. From the lake he journeyed westward, not without adventures, for he was attacked with murderous intent by the beings whom he had created. When, however, scorning such unequal combat, he had manifested his power by hurling the lightning on the hillsides, and consuming the forests, they recognized their maker, and humbled themselves before him. He was reconciled and taught them arts and agriculture, institutions and religion, meriting the title they gave him of Pachayachachic, teacher of all things. At last, he disappeared in the Western Ocean. Four personages, companions or sons, were closely connected with him. They rose together with him from the lake or else were his first creations. These were the four mythical civilizers of Peru, who another legend asserts emerged from the cave Pekarantampu, the lodgings of the dawn. To these, Veracocha gave the earth, to one the north, to another the south, to a third the east, to a fourth the west. Their names are very variously given, but as they have already been identified with the four winds, we can omit their consideration here. Tradition, as has been rightly observed by the Inca Garcalasco de la Vega, transferred a portion of the story of Veracocha to Manco Capac, first of the historical Incas. King Manco, however, was a real character, the Rudolph of Hopsburg of their reigning family, and flourished about the 11th century. There is a general resemblance between this story and that of Macabo both proceed and create the sun both journey to the west overcoming opposition with the thunderbolt both divide the world between the four winds both were the fathers gods and teachers of their nations nor does it cease here macabo i have shown is the white spirit of the dawn veracocha all authorities translate the fat or foam of the sea the idea conveyed is of whiteness foam being called fat from its color so true is that today in peru white men are called viracochas and the early explorers constantly received the same epithet the name's a metaphor the dawn rises above the horizon as the snowy foam on the surface of a lake as the algonkins spoke of the Abenakis. Their white ancestors, as in the Mexican legends, the early Toltecs, were of fair complexion. So the Aymaras sometimes called the first four brothers, Veracochus white men. It is the ancient story how light sprang from the deep, and from her native east to journey through the airy gloom began. The central figure of Toltec mythology is Quetzalcoatl, Not an author on ancient Mexico, but has something to say about the glorious days when he ruled over the land. No one denies him to have been a god, the god of the air, highest deity of the Toltecs, to whose honor was erected the Pyramid of Cholula, grandest monument of their race. But many insist that he was at first a man, some deified king. They were, in truth, many Quetzalcoatls, for his high priest always bore his name but he himself is a pure creation of the fancy, and all his alleged history is nothing but a myth. His emblematic name, the Bird Serpent, and his rebus and cross at Palenque, I have already explained. Others of his titles were Iwakato, the air, yolcat the rattlesnake, Tuil, the rumbler, Uimac, the strong hand, Nanihanakato, the lord of the four winds. The same dualism reappears in him that has been noted in his analogues elsewhere. He is both lord of the eastern light and the winds. As the former he was born of a virgin in the land of Tula or Talapalan in the distant Orient and was high priest of that happy realm. The morning star was his symbol and the temple of Cholula was dedicated to him expressly as the author of light as by days we measure time he was the alleged inventor of the calendar like all the dawn heroes he too was represented as of white complexion clothed in long white robes and as most of the aztec gods with a full and flowing beard when his earthly work was done he too returned to the east assigning as a reason that the sun the ruler of talapalan demanded his presence But the real motive was that he had been overcome by Tezcalapoca, otherwise Yoali the wind or spirit of night, who had descended from heaven by a spider's web and presented his rival with a draft pretended to confer immortality, but in fact producing uncontrollable longing for home. For the wind and the light both depart when the gloaming draws near, or when the clouds spread their dark and shadowy webs along the mountains and pour the vivifying rain upon the fields. In his other character, he was begot of the breath of Tonakatiotl, god of our flesh or subsistence, or, according to Gomorrah, was the son of Istak-Meshkotl, the white cloud serpent, the spirit of the tornado. Messenger of Tlaloc, god of rains, he was figuratively said to sweep the road for him, since in that country violent winds are the precursors of the wet seasons. Wherever he went, all manner of singing birds bore him company, emblems of the whistling breezes. When he finally disappeared in the far east, he sent back four trusty youths who had ever shared his fortunes, incomparably swift and light of foot, with directions to divide the earth between them and rule it till he should return and resume his power. When he would promulgate his decrees, his herald proclaimed them from Tatsaxiopec, the hill of shouting, with such a mighty voice that it could be heard a hundred leagues around. The arrows which he shot transfixed great trees, the stones he threw leveled forests, and when he laid his hands on the rocks the mark was indelible yet as thus emblematic of the thunderstorm he possessed in full measure its better attributes by shaking his sandals he gave fire to men and peace plenty and riches blessed his subjects tradition says he built many temples to Eucli, the aztec pluto and at the creation of the sun that he slew all other gods for the advancing dawn disperses the spectral shades of night and yet all its vivifying power does but result in increasing the number doomed to fell before the remorseless stroke of death his symbols were the bird the serpent the cross and the flint representing the clouds the lightning the four winds and the thunderbolt perhaps as Wemac, the strong hand he was god of the earthquakes the Zapotecs worshipped such a deity under the image of this member carved from a precious stone calling to mind the Kabul, the working hand adored by the mayas and said to be one of the images of zamna their hero god the human hand that divine tool as it has been called might well be regarded by the reflective mind as the teacher of the arts and the amulet whose magic power has won for man What vantage he has gained in his long combat with nature and his fellows. End of section seventeen. This recording is by Ron Lockhart of Boca Raton, Florida.